This morning, the title of our lesson is From Death to Life. Our family theme is the resurrection of Christ. Who would have thought that, huh? (laughs) Amen. What a day to do that, to celebrate that. Our objective is that we would learn to serve the Lord and look forward to heaven because Jesus Christ indeed conquered death. Our text is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, beginning of verse 16, all the way through verse 8 of chapter 16. Two key truths this morning. Number one, Christ was crucified. He was mocked, beaten, and buried to make our salvation possible. Number two, uh, Jesus was raised from the dead to guarantee our salvation. Now, I want to say something. I think Jeremy even touched on it this morning in the sunrise service. We know that Jesus was crucified on Friday, but how many know if the resurrection didn't happen, that crucifixion didn't matter? It didn't matter because he wasn't the only one who was crucified that day or ever, for that, for that goes on. But he died that death, and the, and the resurrection was God's stamp of approval on the work of Christ. So he was raised that third day. Our Bible basics were encouraged to uh, to memorize John eleven twenty five. 25. You remember when Jesus uh, went to where, where Lazarus was, he'd been dead for four days. And Martha said, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother would still be alive. And Jesus said to her that he was the resurrection of the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, by the way, how many know that verse is not just for Martha, it's for us? Yet he or she shall live. So where does today's story fit in the uh, overall account of the Bible? Uh, again, we mentioned this last several weeks. Uh, Mark wrote the gospel sometime between 55 to 59 A.D., and these events, of course, took place in around A.D. 33, and, of course, the end of the ministry of Christ here on earth. Uh, in our get started this morning, uh, certainly there are a lot of occupations uh, or relations in our world where people spend a lot of their time serving other people. What are some of those occupations that people serve other people? What are some of the ones? Oh, doctors and nurses, yes. Say it again. Absolutely. Now, and that being said, when you go to a restaurant, be kind to that waitress, okay? Yeah, but they're, they're there to serve other people. And that's part. Now, I realize you get paid to do that, but I think you have to have a heart for that as well, to be able to do what those folks uh, do to, you know, to serve us and others as well. Well, today, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, we're going to see how Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, I believe he was a supreme example of one who came to serve and to do what is best for others. Now, remember, even during his ministry here, Jesus plainly said he didn't come to serve, I mean, to be served, but do what? To serve. He came to serve, and, and, and indeed he did. So for three and a half years, about, uh, Christ was engaged in preaching, teaching, discipling, if you will, and certainly working miracles. And when time was right, and how many know God is always right on time, okay? Uh, To fulfill God's plan, Jesus set out to Jerusalem. Now, again, I want to remind you, uh, back in uh, Matthew's Gospel, about chapter 16, uh, when Jesus uh, asked them, who do they say the Son of Man am? Who do you say that I am? From that point on, the Bible said Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. So my question is, that means he's going to to Jerusalem. Did he know what he was walking into? Yes. He absolutely knew everything about that. So he sets out for Jerusalem, 
And he did know he would be tried and he would be convicted. And so the time had come that he would offer up his life for you and for me. He died a vicarious death. Not for himself, but he did it for us. Our first key truth this morning is the fact that Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was crucified. And he was buried to make our salvation possible. So let's read beginning in Mark 15, verse 16, all the way to verse 47 of Mark 15. Anybody want to do that? Quite a bit of reading here.
Wow, what a story. You know, we've all read that story, I don't know how many times, but I, I, there's not a time that I've not read it and felt a rush of emotion. So what, what's going on here? What's taking place? Okay. And that's kind of a, in a nutshell what took place. Uh, what's interesting, if you were here last Sunday morning, we looked in chapter 14, uh, where he was arrested uh, and, of course, taken before the religious leaders. And, again, the Pharisees and those should have known better. But they mistreated him. They mocked him. They railed upon him. Uh, they were amazed he kept silent. But, nonetheless, after that had taken place, uh, the religious leaders turned him over to the Romans. Now, why would he do that? They weren't what now, Wayne? So? So? You what now? He was under Roman rule. But, and Wayne, you're right. So, that being said, what does that tell us the end desire they wanted? They want him to be dead. They wanted him dead. And they had, they, they had no right to condemn someone to death. So that's why they turned them over to the Romans. Now, I can better understand how the Romans treated him. I still can't understand why the Pharisees treated him like they did and the Sanhedrin. But it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, again, you know, Pilate is the Roman governor. Uh, we mentioned last week in our message he was a very harsh governor, uh, hated by the Jews, and he actually hated the Jews. He did try some things to sort of pacify them a little bit because he realized if any kind of uprising happened, it would endanger his political position. So he tried to watch out for that. And by the way, we mentioned this last week in our message. Normally, Herod would rule from Caesarea, the one by the sea. and But now he's in Jerusalem, and he's there because of the Passover. He's there with the Roman garrison, the Roman army, to make sure that no uprising happens during this time. And as I mentioned last Sunday morning in my message, it had happened some years ago, and they, they're trying to keep it from happening again. But nonetheless, he's there, time of the Passover. And so here we have Christ now turned over to the Roman authorities. And so the, one of the first things that 
Pilate does, he has Jesus scourged. What does that mean? Whipped. What do you think of what you think when you think of that? Can you imagine? In our Good Friday service, and I never really give this a thought until he mentioned our preacher that preached that night. You know, oftentimes when we study scriptures, uh, the Jewish law says 40 stripes and no more. And in order to prevent from going over, they would stop at 39 in case they miscounted one. But please understand, this was not Jewish beating. This was a Roman beating. And so who knows uh, how many stripes. Uh, but most scholars believe that uh, when they finished, there wasn't much flesh left on the back of Jesus Christ. I can't imagine. I simply can't imagine. So, again, and I'm not trying to excuse Pilate. He does it at the will of the people. Uh, but he certainly tries to wash his hands up. He's still guilty. Uh, but he's just trying to pacify uh, the Jews, if you will. So, none, nonetheless, he has him scourged. And then uh, he's turned over uh, to the soldiers to be crucified. Now, it's also interesting. Uh, not only was he beaten and eventually crucified, and none of it's good, uh, but the Bible says he was mocked and even beaten more by the soldiers. Now, my question would be, uh, how, in, in some of the ways that the Bible gives us here, but how... Were some of the ways they mocked him? What did they do to him? They what now? They spit on him. Okay. Oh, crown of the throne. What? Why do you think they did that for? He claimed to be what? The king. So we'll see. Okay, Wayne. Ah, the purple robe. What does that signify? Royalty. Yeah. You say you're a king. You put this purple robe on, and they even bowed their knee. To worship him, you think that worship was sincere? No. I mean, over and over again in this passage, we see words like reviled or railed upon or mocked. And that's exactly what they did. They mocked Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Uh, Lavenda, you mentioned that crown of thorns. You picture, can you picture that in your mind? Now, I've been told those thorns were probably at least two inches long. Now, we have, uh, in our yard, we had some uh, locust trees. And locust does make good firewood to burn if you've got a, a wood-burning stove or a fireplace. because off good heat. But they also have thorns. But they're not real long. But they're long enough. I wouldn't want them. But they, they, they made that crown of thorns. They pressed it on his head. And by the way, we've been preaching a teaching on Wednesday night uh, about the personhood of Christ. Him being human and God. So my question is, when they beat him, it probably didn't hurt since he was God. What do you, say? What do you mean, no? He was human. It hurt. When they, ple- when they forced that crown of thorns, it, you know, it pierced his skin. He bled, and it, it was very, very, very painful. Uh, so we see not only did the, back in chapter 14, uh, the Jewish people, uh, religious leaders mocked him, if you will, the same goes on with these soldiers. Uh, they, according to the Gospels, they repeatedly uh, struck him with a reed. Uh, they spit upon him. Dan, you mentioned that a moment ago. Uh, they they uh, they took the palms of their hands and, and buffeted his face with that. 
uh, you know, again, bowed down in fake worship. And then they led him out to the place of Golgotha. So again, taunting him, reviling him. And when in that culture, whenever a criminal was condemned, condemned to die on the cross, custom was he would carry the crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. And Daniel read a moment ago, because of what he'd gone through, uh, most scholars agree uh, that by this time uh, he was physically not able to carry the cross. Uh, so they compelled one, uh, Simon of Cyrene, to carry that cross. And we know nothing else about him except uh, who uh, he's the father of. But nonetheless, he carried that cross, Simon did, that took Jesus to a place called Golgotha. And that word simply means the skull. We're not sure where it's at exactly, uh, but it was called that because of the hillside resembled that of a skull. So they get him there to Golgotha, and what do they do with him? They nail him to the cross. Who's on either side of him? Two thieves. One on the right and one on the left. Now, to me, here's what's interesting. A lot of what we're reading today, at first glance, if this is all we would ever read, seems purely incidental. You know, why would Mark mention crucified between two thieves? Why would the gospel writers mention they cast lots or dice for his clothing? Well, all of this took place in order that Scripture might be fulfilled. Which means what? It's been prophesied. So here's what... Can, now, bear with me here, okay? So we've got these Roman soldiers. And they've got a Bible in one hand. And one of them says, hey, turn to Psalm 22 here. It says here, we're supposed to cast lots for his... What do you mean, no, Wayne? I don't think so. You know I'm being, being silly there. Certainly they were not. So, now, please understand. I realize that Mark is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he's just recounting what took place that day. What Peter or the other apostles may have told him of some of the things that went on. But all of this took place in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Now, listen very carefully, okay? To me, that is one of the of many scriptures that give validity to the resurrection and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was predicted ahead of time. And my question is, whatever was prophesied about the crucifixion, then how did it happen? Just like it was prophesied, okay? Just the way it was prophesied. And Wayne, you're right. I don't think those Roman soldiers ever read a Bible. Uh, they weren't referring. They weren't saying, hey, we've got to do this. It was all fulfilled because God knew ahead of time this is exactly what they would do to his son. 
Well, it's kind of interesting we think about that. He was mocked. Uh, he was ridiculed. Uh, he was reviled. Uh, again, sort of giving us the atmosphere uh, surrounding the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my, my, my goodness, if they would only realize what they were doing. And, I, and my mind went black. I, I think it was Zechariah who prophesied there'll come a day they will look upon him whom they pierced. And they will know they have crucified the Lord of glory. Any thoughts on this so far? Anything that comes to your mind that stands out? Anything at all? They had no. Yes, that's what gets me. They should have known. I mean, even today, uh, the, the for the most part, the minds of the Jews are blinded. Their eyes are blinded. I mean, this is, you know, how can you not see it? Uh, and, and remember, uh, Jeremy preached this morning on the resurrection. He referred to First uh, Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he, he, he puts a note at the end of that, according to the Scriptures. Well, what Scripture was he talking about? The Old Testament. And, and when they had it, Old Testament, they read it. And a lot of the, in fact, I think most Pharisees had memorized at least the law, if not almost all the Old Testament. So they knew what the Bible says, and yet they missed it. According to the gospel writers, they crucified him about 9 o'clock in the morning, or we would call that 9 o'clock in the morning. Three hours later, what happened? Which would be about noon. What happened? What do you mean dark, Dan? It disappeared. Now, what do you think about that, Dan? How dark do you think it was? Yeah. I mean, it caught their attention. We're not told how it happened. It simply got dark. Right in the middle of the day. And the Bible says it lasted for three more hours. From noon until about three o'clock in the afternoon. And by the way, we don't know what caused it, but one thing is for sure. It pictured God's wrath and God's judgment on sin. I was speaking with Marvin during breakfast this morning as we considered the crucifixion. And we mentioned a moment ago, I have no doubt, everything physically they did to Christ caused him pain. But I'm convinced it was bearing our sins that brought the most pain to Jesus as he hung there on Calvary. Now, in fact, uh, Danny read it a moment ago. And hear me, and I'm hoping I can do this justice. I don't think I can. This anguished Christ so much. And whether or not God actually turned his back on Christ, I can't say that. But I think it's clear Jesus felt like he did. Because what did Jesus cry out? My God. My God, 
why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine the anguish? Cooper came into my office this morning and he's reading uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. And uh, he said, Papa said, uh, I was reading in that book and they, they, they agreed that when it came to this passage, when they were translating <coughs> the the Greek language into English, they, they didn't have a word to describe the pain that Jesus went through. And so they coined a new word, excruciating. And the whole point of the word was in the middle of the word is crucified. Excruciating. It was more than anyone could bear. And, you know, even that doesn't do it justice, right? But still, I thought, what a way to, to try to describe what Jesus did for us. So he cries out to God. And would you agree it was a deep cry of mourning? A deep cry of loneliness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we, we, it's hard for me to fathom that Jesus Christ, He took on Himself all of our guilt. He took on Himself all of our sins and He bore them on the cross. And one scholar says, it prohibited the Father from looking at Him because God cannot look upon sin. But then the Bible says he takes his last breath and he gave up his spirit. Gave up his spirit. Our text this morning tells us that when he took that last breath, something happened at the temple. What was it? We mean ripped. From top to bottom. Now we... Touched on that last week in our message. This was Herod's temple. And by the way, there was nothing in that temple. The Ark of the Covenant was gone years ago. But it did symbolize God's presence. And I read some on that just the other day. And many believe that that curtain of the temple was a hand breadth thick. About nine inches thick. Could anybody with their hand tear a cloth nine inches thick? I don't think so. And Wayne, it was tore from where? From the top to the bottom. Now, again, you know, I'm not a Greek scholar, but my, our, our study guide tells us that that word in the Greek is passive. It means nobody caused, nobody did it with their bare hands. So my question is, who did it? God did. Torn from top to bottom. Performed by an outside force, God Himself. Coincidence? Some would say God's plan. But was it was the timing of coincidence? No. The moment Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. 
So the moment Jesus died, the barrier that separated us from God, the barrier of sin, if you will, has been removed. Now remember, that curtain hung there all those years, even, you know, back to the days of Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's tabernacle, the one they built after the exile. There was a curtain there. And what did that curtain tell people? Yeah. Don't go any farther. It's separation. We are separated. But thank God, because Christ died, we are no longer separated. Amen? We have access now into the throne room of God. The Bible says there was at least one centurion there. Now, there were more than that, but one of them said, when he saw Jesus die, surely he was the Son of God. And we're not sure if he ever got saved or not, but I kind of believe he must have. Maybe, maybe not, but yes, he recognized who Jesus was. Now, please understand. Everybody else mocked him. Everybody else says, if you're who you say you are, come off that cross. You said you could build that temple three days, come down and show us. Come off that cross. Now, by the way, uh, by this time, a lot of the Jews are gathered around, if you will. And they're mocking and they're railing at him and they're shaking their heads. The Bible says that there were some of the women who had served Christ during his ministry here. They were there. And they watched as those events unfolded. Finally, just before sunset, Joseph of Arimathea and the other gospels tells Nicodemus joined him. He goes to Pilate and he says, we'd like to have the body of Jesus. What was Pilate's concern at that point? Is he dead? Okay. Now remember, rarely did a person die right away from crucifixion. In fact, a lot of times it would take four, five, six, or seven days. And so when they come and ask for the body of Jesus, uh, Pilate was wondering, is he dead? So to verify that, what's he do? Why is that? Yeah. Now remember, these were Roman soldiers probably specifically assigned to crucifixion duty. And that was their job. It was their obligation to make sure that that's person was dead and of course the centurion verified yes jesus had died now by the way surprised Pilate, but nonetheless he took his word for it and he gives them the body they take him off the cross they wrap him in linen cloth and they take him to a tomb okay to bury him uh was that unusual no people were buried uh, jeremy pointed that out this morning uh, in our sunrise service. But it's interesting, from the time he was on the cross, within six hours he was dead. He was dead. They take him, they bury him. <laughs> Rolled a stone against the opening. And by the way, it was a very large stone, very narrow, wasn't very thick. And you couldn't break through it, of course. And they would usually put cut a groove in the hillside, and it would angle down. 
So it's pretty easy to roll in, but what, what about rolling it out? <laughs> yeah, it'd be tough. Especially for a couple of women, right? But that's exactly what happened. And then Mark gives us an interesting detail. Now, again, I hope you know by now, I don't think anything in the Word of God is incidental. Okay, there's a reason for it. But Mark tells us uh, that there were two women who watched not only the, the crucifixion, but they also followed Joseph and of Arimathea and Nicodemus to the tomb. So they not only watched him die, they saw where he was buried. How important is that? See, up here, what people could claim, well, sure, they, they went to a tomb, but they went to the wrong one. Hadn't been used yet, that's what they would say. But they taught, they knew where he was buried. So Jesus endured awful emotional pain, physical pain. He did it all to pay the penalty for our sins. And if we talked about it earlier, all, many of these detailed events that we're reading in the New Testament are simply fulfillment it was prophesied not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New when Jesus talked about his impending death and his crucifixion. Let's apply it. Worship and serve Christ out of appreciation for what he has done for us. Got that? Not what we did for him. For what he has done for us. Alright, let's do a quick question. I think we kind of discussed the answer already, but what, what did the tearing of the curtain in the temple, what did it signify? When that was torn in two, what did it signify? Amen. Our access to God. No wonder the writer of Hebrews said we can approach the throne of God boldly. That means with confidence. We can enter into the holy of holies. So number one, Christ was mocked. He was beaten, crucified, and buried to make our salvation possible. Number two, Jesus was raised from the dead to guarantee our salvation. Mark 16, the first eight verses, please. Ah, what time of day was it? Early in the morning, right at sunrise. What was their concern as they were 
walking toward the tomb. Now they were going to move the stone. Uh, how many know they had more words? Than, they should have had more words than that, okay? Maybe they didn't know, and we got to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, the Pharisees were so concerned. They go to the Roman authority and say, look, he claimed that after three days, he'll do what? He'll rise again. So, and if, and if, if, if they get there and that tomb is empty, man, we're in trouble. And so are you. That's, that's my paraphrase, okay? So what did the Romans do? Huh? Yeah, they placed guards there. Roman, Roman guards. They also sealed that tomb. Now that wasn't an ordinary happening, folks. They want to make sure what? Nobody stole the body. I mean, cause come on, these guys claimed it, Jesus claimed it, and we can just imagine those 11 guys, uh, you know, Judas is dead by now, getting together, going there in the night, stealing the body. They got an empty tomb and we're in trouble. So probably the, the women didn't know that. But if we consider everything, the heavy stone, the Roman guard, what were the chances of getting into the tomb? They didn't have any, did they? Now remember, the stone was large enough where they could see it from a distance. They saw it, you know, before they got there. But to their amazement, what was it, what was the deal? The stone was what? Already rolled back. It's also interesting. They saw the stone. They go into the tomb. And they see this young man sitting on the right side. And the Bible says he was clothed in a white raiment. And what was their response? They were afraid. Now, a young man, but was it just a man? It was an angel. And by the way, in light of what you might see on television, I read in some of these other publications, almost every time when an angel appears, it's in the form of, of a man in the scriptures. Okay? And that's why women cannot be angels. I'm kidding. Sheesh. Tough crowd this morning, right? But no, almost a lot of times they appeared as men. But none of this was without an angel. So they enter the tomb. Where's Christ at? He's gone, right? The tomb is empty. Now, did this angel know why they were there? He said, I don't know where you come. You're looking for Christ, the one of Nazareth. And so what's the angel tell them? He is risen. Notice what he doesn't say. He didn't say somebody stole his body. That's not what happened. He is risen. Now, it's interesting. He says, implying if you don't believe me, look where he laid. Look where he was laying. He's not here. He is risen. Somebody say amen. Can you imagine? Now, by the way, I mean, here you got this angel sitting there. The tomb is empty. Is it fair to say they were scared? They were perplexed beyond degree, if you will. They simply couldn't 
fathom them. In fact, the Bible says they ran out quickly from the, from the tomb. They were trembling. They were amazed. And they were afraid to tell anybody. Another accreditation to the credibility of the Scriptures, because in that culture, uh, if man would have wrote this story, that would have been men there, not women, because women were not considered credible witnesses, if you will. But yet God had a different view, okay? And they go from the tomb. It's kind of interesting uh, putting the Gospels together. The angels tell them, basically, you've come to see. Now you need to go and tell. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. Can you imagine? I can't. But oh, thank God. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's stand together. Next week we're going to the Old Testament. Uh, Cheryl, would you mind bringing your uh, visual aid chalkboard so we can draw a picture of Haman? And, and you know, the, I know you used to play that with, with your daughter years ago. She told me that. We're going to the book of Esther next week. Uh, let me see. i got the chapter written down here somewhere. Chapter uh, 3 uh, and chapter 4 of Esther next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. And because you live, we live. We love, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless each one of you.